Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. You know, as I've been grappling with those verses for actually several weeks now, I haven't been able to get Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 out of my head. So we'll return to those words in a moment. But I just want to read a few verses uh, from 2 Corinthians where Paul says, Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Some people say that seeing is believing. But what Paul is saying here is that in some way, seeing is becoming You become like what you behold. And in this tremendous passage in Revelation that Sarah's just read for us, we behold Jesus. And the degree to which we allow this vision of Jesus to fill our gaze will be the degree to which we are transformed. And so really... My simple aim this morning is to try and help you see Jesus more clearly, to gaze on him, to be overwhelmed with his sheer beauty and glory, to be changed more into his likeness, and ultimately to worship him with fresh passion. And so at the end, we will be worshipping him, hopefully, with fresh passion. But for all of that to happen, I do think we're all going to need a bit of help from the Holy Spirit. And so uh, perhaps you'd pray with me before we go any further. Spirit of God, I pray that even now you would start removing the veil from our eyes, from our faces, that thus far have prevented us, for whatever reason, seeing Jesus more clearly and more vividly. Spirit of God, would you open our eyes? Would you open our minds? Would you give us fresh understanding? Would you soften our hearts to enable us to to see, to believe, to experience more of the glory of Jesus than we have ever experienced before. I pray these, these words would explode off the page and into our hearts in a way that transforms us, that tangibly changes us, that causes us to reflect more of the glory of Christ to the people around us. Jesus, it's for your glory ultimately and our joy that we pray. Amen. Okay, before working through our passage, 
Let me very quickly take a step back and remind you of the overall context. If you remember from last week, uh, and if you weren't around last week, please do have a listen to that talk. Really, it, it, it's uh, a bit of a foundation for this whole series and will help you from getting confused and befuddled as we work through the whole of the book of Revelation in the weeks and months to come. So if you haven't listened to last week, please do have a listen to last week. But what we saw then was that John is writing to churches that are suffering or compromising to avoid suffering. And we see in verse 9 that we've just listened to, John is writing to these believers as a fellow sufferer. He's in exile on the island of Patmos, somewhere off the coast of Greece, which was a place where Rome sent political prisoners. And so when John speaks of the need for patient endurance, he knows from experience what he's talking about. That these aren't people on the crest of a wave, just carried along with the excitement of it all, seeing success left, right and centre. No, these are people who are having to endure patiently. They are in all probability from small weak, fragile churches. Many of them are poor and they together are facing the might of the Roman Empire in no uncertain terms, belonging to God's kingdom and worshipping Jesus as Lord, put them at odds with the Roman emperors who demanded that people bow to them as gods at pain of death if they refused. As a result, by the time John gets this revelation from God, some of those first believers tragically had already been killed, but there was far worse around the corner. There was this tremendous persecution against the church about to break out. The storm clouds were building up. And when it actually broke, it was unthinkably horrific. Many of the people who read this book, who listened to these words, read to them, were torn to pieces by wild horses. They had their arms and their legs tied to horses. The horses were whipped. As the horses bolted, the believers' limbs were pulled out, ripped off their bodies. Some of them were impaled on stakes while still alive, covered with tar and lit as torches. Some of them had holes drilled into their skulls and molten lead poured into their heads. Some of them were just thrown to the lions. The question is, how did they face that? Because face it, they did. It's a simple historical fact that one of the main reasons Christianity spread so rapidly and so effectively was because the church was getting killed. One of the early church fathers said, the blood of the martyrs is seed, which means the more they killed the church, the more the church grew. When the Romans 
watched the early believers face death with this unshakable courage and peace, they moved from being intrigued to being desperate to find out the explanation. And as we're going to be seeing in the weeks to come, John gave those first believers something that enabled them to face it with hope and even joy. It's a historical fact that the revelation they got through John enabled them to face all of that. Molten lead poured into your head, arms and legs ripped off, friends, family members thrown to the lions. Now look, I don't know all of what you're facing right now. And I certainly don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to downplay the very real struggles, that the pain, the suffering that people in this room, myself included, are in the midst of right now. But the logic goes this way. If whatever's in this book enabled them to face that, it's got to be sufficient for you and for me. The point is, if the same material, if the same revelation, if the same truth, if the same stuff they received enabled them back then to face all of that, what can we do to grasp hold of it and live in the good of it today? And so, all that being said, what was it that John gave them and us? Well, first and foremost, he helped them and us see the glory of the risen Christ. A vision so immensely powerful that it put the very real threat of Rome into perspective. Now, just by way of a quick aside, I do think it's significant that John receives this vision while he's worshipping God. Verse 10, it was the Lord's day and I was worshipping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. You remember, last week we, we saw that Revelation is a letter, it's also a prophecy, and it's also an apocalypse. But it can also, fourthly, be understood as an extended worship service. All of the events, some really quite complicated and confusing, but all of the events we're going to read about are punctuated by songs of praise, both in heaven and on earth. One writer, James Jordan, calls it liturgical warfare. He explains how it is the prayers and the faithfulness of the saints before God's eye that set in motion the events in the book The same, he says, is true today. I tell you, there is something about faithfully praying and praising that inevitably gives us a bigger view of Jesus that then fuels even more passionate prayer and praise. Worship is really important. The other thing to quickly point out before finally getting into this vision of Jesus. And I promise we will get there in a few moments. But the other thing to quickly point out is where Jesus is located when John sees him. 
Verse 12, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. The seven lampstands we're going to be seeing over the next seven weeks are in fact seven churches. And Christ is standing right in the middle of these churches. He isn't merely over the churches. He's not distant from the churches. He is slap bang in the middle of them. And so John begins describing this vision by telling us that the Christ we're about to look at is very much in our midst. He's not far away in time and space. No, he moves among his lampstands, breathing life back into flickering flames. And right now, Church Central is one of his lampstands. Jesus is here this morning. He's eager to see us burn with the light of his glory. He's here right now to set our hearts ablaze with fresh love and passion for him. And to that end, he invites us to look at what John saw. Verse 13, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. Could either be a kingly robe or a priestly robe, maybe even both. In the Roman army, apparently the longer the robe, the higher the rank. Jesus has a robe right down to his feet. And the lampstands, they evoke the temple. And so we should also probably think of Jesus here dressed as our high priest, constantly representing us before the Father and inviting us to come close on the basis of his sacrifice for us. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance." Now, bear with me here, but there's actually somewhere else in the Bible that uses this kind of poetic description of a person's appearance. If you think about it, this bears more than a striking resemblance to parts of the Song of Songs. Now, I don't know when you last studied the Song of Songs, but there are several occasions where the two lovers use a form of Arabic love poetry to describe one another. They start with the head and work down to the feet and then all the way back up again, poetically describing how their hair is like clusters of dates and their eyes are like doves. And one of my personal favourites here, their teeth are like a flock of sheep, which apparently was a great compliment back in the day. Their neck is like an ivory tower. Their rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. 
and so on. There's way more where all of that came from. And this description of Jesus by John is a version of that. John describes Jesus' head, hair, eyes, feet, hands, mouth, and face. And as we unpack this glorious picture of Jesus, as we've prayed already, I'm hoping that we would see him more vividly, that that we'd fall in love with him more passionately, and as a result, fall down and worship him. And so, let's work through this poem line by line. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, then on think of another place in the Bible where someone has a vision of someone like this with white hair. I know the answer. As, please tell us, Joel. Oh, round of applause. I don't know how you plucked that answer from my notes that you have in front of you. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, there, there is a scene where the Ancient of Days, with hair white like wool, as white as snow, meets the Son of Man. Now, what's amazing, at least to me, you might not be amazed, but just bear with it. What's amazing about this scene in Revelation is somehow the Son of Man has become the one who has hair white like wool, as white as snow. In Daniel's vision, there's a picture of God the Father and God the Son, but here it's as though the two are being brought together. So Jesus is one like a son of man who has hair that's white like wool, as white as snow. In that sense, he represents both the son of man and the ancient of days. He's both human and the eternal one. There's also, at a way more basic level, something about white hair that tends to speak of honor and wisdom. Now, I think it's fair to say that in white British culture, sadly, we respect the process of aging less and less. So a person is admired if they manage to keep looking youthful and tends to be overlooked or dismissed if they appear old. But in a lot of Eastern cultures, even today, they still fit with a view of the Bible where we're told white hair is actually a crown of glory and we're also commanded to show respect for the aged. Now, perhaps one of the reasons why we today don't want to grow old is that we associate age with the fading powers that make life worth living, the capacity to see and hear and think clearly and move about and not have pain. But God promises there's coming a day where he'll do away with all of the consequences of sin, where he'll establish a new heaven and a new earth, where aging won't anymore have any of those negative connotations. It'll only be associated with growing insight, 
growing wisdom, growing maturity, all of our strengths will still be there. Our mental powers, hallelujah, will not fade. We will have perfect sight. We'll have perfect hearing. We'll have perfect agility and our bodies will not grow weary and tired. Nothing that is great about use will be left behind there will only be added all the powers and beauties and depths of age. And this is perhaps what John saw in Jesus here. He was like the ancient of days with all the wisdom of eternity and all the maturity and steadiness of age. But he was not weak or weary or diminished or faltering in his step. And then John moves from his hair to his eyes. He says his eyes were like flames of fire. Fire in the Bible means a lot of different things, but very often it means holiness. Fire speaks of the burning purity, the otherness, distinctness, separateness of God. And Jesus has fiery eyes. When you try and look Jesus in the eye, you can see flames bursting out. That's the picture John is using to describe the utter holiness, the utter purity, the utter otherness of Jesus. Now, uh, as Joel would tell you, back in Daniel 7, we see that the Ancient of Days sits as the judge in a courtroom. And Christ's blazing eyes in Revelation also speak of his ability to see and judge people's hearts. The eyes of Jesus aren't clouded, they're not faded, they're not drooping, they're not weary. They are eyes of sharpest clarity. They miss nothing that happens in the whole universe and they're exploding with energy. When you gaze at Jesus, he isn't tired or world-weary or burned out or fatigued. Instead, his eyes are burning with the flashing fire of inexhaustible energy and hope. When Jesus thinks about his plans for you, and for this church, and for our city, and for our nation, and for all the nations of the world. He isn't hesitant, or wearied, or bored, or distracted. His eyes are aflame with utter exhilaration, and passion, and relish for the work he intends to do in and through us. Those are the eyes. And then John moves from Jesus' eyes to his feet. Verse 15, his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. The feet of Jesus are on fire, that they're glowing, they're refined in the fire. You know, it's often said, isn't it, that we are the hands and the feet of Jesus. Just remember what happened to Jesus' hands and feet. It's powerful, I think, to Remember that Jesus is our forerunner, he's our representative, and that we take our response 
to the testing of fire and opposition and persecution in the same way that he did. Never forget, Jesus was put to the ultimate test on the cross. His hands, his feet were pierced as he faced death and overcame it. And in coming through the very real fires of persecution, his feet glow all the brighter. And so do we when we're refined in the fire. And moving on, his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. There's this incredible intensity when he speaks. It's like thundering, crashing waves. It is deafening. When you're confronted by mighty ocean waves, which sadly in Birmingham, uh, until global warming really kicks in, uh, is not such a thing. But when you travel to the coast, shouldn't joke about such things, it's very serious. Uh, I take that back. Maybe you could edit it out of the recording. Uh, But when you go to the coast and see the mighty crashing waves, there's a sense of awe, isn't there? Uh, It's frightening. Incidentally, that's one of the reasons why we take the word of God seriously. When Jesus speaks, his words inspire awe. Prophet Isaiah spoke of people trembling at the words of God. When he speaks, it makes people fall down in wonder at the sheer glory of his voice, let alone what he says. And it therefore surely goes without saying that we will obey what he says. Verse 16. He held seven stars in his right hand. We find out later that the seven stars are the seven messengers of the churches and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. Now, emperors, in, in worldly terms, tend to have messages in their mouths and swords in their hands, whereas Jesus here has a message in his hands and a sword coming out of his Mouth. It's like his word is the only weapon he needs. He doesn't need physical weapons, swords or tanks or bombs. Jesus rules through his word. His word coming out of his mouth is the sword. But he doesn't come simply to strike down and smite everybody. Now, he, he comes with the word of God that brings judgment, yes, but also blessing and hope and restoration with a message that is good news for all people. His word is the only weapon he needs, and his word is the only weapon we need. It really can cut through anything. And then... John concludes, he wraps up this sevenfold description of Jesus by saying his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. You can't even look into the sun shining in all its brilliance, can you? You, you try doing it for any length of time, it will blind you. The glory of Jesus is blindingly hot. He's awe-inspiring He's totally overwhelming. Now, if you're John, seeing all of this, what would you do? What would you do? 
If you encountered Jesus, if you were to see him fully revealed as he really is, with his feet and his eyes on fire, a sword coming out of his mouth, his voice like crashing waves, his face like the sun in all its brilliance, how would you respond? I mean, would you half-heartedly sing a song, kind of hands in your pockets with your mind drifting off and thinking of what you're going to be doing later? Would you start asking him questions like, actually, uh, I've got a few things I want to ask you. Or do you tell him all the things you think he would have got wrong in your life or in the world around you? I suspect if this actually happened to me or to you, we would respond exactly like John responded. Verse 17, when I saw him... I fell at his feet as if I were dead. All the concerns that you and I have right now are going to fade into insignificance. You are going to bow before him in wonder and adoration. You will be overcome with awe and fear. You'll fall at his feet as if you were dead. We think... We'll come to Jesus with all of our issues. But actually, we will come to Jesus on our faces. But look what happens next. When we come face down, look what Jesus does. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. That's one of the things that is so immensely glorious about Jesus. He doesn't leave us groveling in the dust, where by all accounts, we really do deserve to be. He puts his right hand on John and on us. Remember that the right hand that holds the stars. He puts his right hand on us, and says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. You have absolutely nothing to fear, that the storm clouds are gathering, that there may be awful things around the corner, but remember, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and I'm now alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus says, I've got the keys. I can let anyone in and out whenever I want. You have nothing to be afraid of. Nobody can die. Nobody can enter the grave unless I say so. And once I've unlocked the grave, nobody can keep you there if I've let you out. Remember Jesus speaking from personal experience here. And so... No matter what trials you are facing, and as we've seen, the first recipients of Revelation, I think it's fair to say they were confronted by many. And in your life and in my life, there will be plenty. But ultimately, we have nothing to be afraid of if we see Jesus for who he really is. We need fear nothing else. That is one of the great 
overarching messages of the whole book of Revelation. Fear not, Jesus is alive. No matter what comes, fear not. The living one who died is now alive forever. And so if you read the book of Revelation and you end up scared and worried and anxious about the future, I would humbly suggest you're reading it wrong. Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. He's now alive forever. And he holds the keys of death and the grave. And so we can take very real courage. We can be bold, not in our own strength, but in a saviour with a voice like a mighty ocean and flaming eyes and feet. And then, and I'll close with this, over and above everything else, this Jesus we've just had described to us, this Jesus who stands before us, he is our bridegroom. First and foremost, this is a love song that is supposed to call us to a place of passion and purity. And as we move into the seven letters to the seven churches over the next few weeks, it is against this backdrop. It's all an appeal from the bridegroom to his bride. It is an impassioned plea to the church not to abandon our beloved, to awaken our love for him, to remain faithful and to worship him above all else. And so, as we saw last week, Revelation is a letter, but it's actually much more than that. It's Jesus the lover sending a love letter to his bride, which we do need to keep in mind when he starts listing what he has against the churches and threatens to spit them out of his mouth. I mean, none of that sounds particularly love lettery, does it? And a word of advice, uh, if you're thinking of sending a Valentine's card tomorrow, it's probably best to stick with the Song of Songs poetry rather than the revelation letters to the churches. Just a, a little tip there for you. But that being said... Jesus is at pains to point out that he corrects and he disciplines everyone he loves. It's like the reason his words are so strong and fiery is because of the strength of his fiery love. He rebukes lukewarmness because he seeks a passionate bride whose love is like his own, stronger than life and death. And so, John's first vision, we're going to see a few visions over the next months, but his first vision begins with this unveiling of Jesus the lover. And the whole book ends, spoiler alert, cover your ears if you don't want to know how it ends, the whole book ends with an impassioned plea from the bride and the spirit for Jesus the lover to return.